episode 360, How to Deliver Value-Based Care That Meets Value-Based Payment Objectives. Today, I speak with Jeb Dunkelberger. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Before I get into the show today, let me just remind everybody about our mailing list, which you can sign up for on our website, RelentlessHealthValue.com. You might follow Relentless Health Value on LinkedIn or Twitter, which is a great option for sure. But I wanted to point out that what you see there is abridged at some level. Meanwhile, if you subscribe to our mailing list directly, again, by going to our website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, it's over on the right sidebar where you can sign up for the mailing list. If you subscribe that way, each week you'll get an email with a full transcription of the whole introduction of the show with timed show notes. Also, we don't send out literally anything else beyond what I just described on a weekly basis. Also, you can unsubscribe easily and anytime you want. You just hit the unsubscribe in the email. Also, we don't share our list with anybody. We barely have time to look at it ourselves. So if you have any concerns there in that regard, please don't. Last week's show, episode 360, was with Dan O'Neill, and he talked about the four gradations of value-based payments from paying purely for volume on one end of the continuum to paying purely for value on the other. When you have a moment, not now, but when you can, go back and listen to that show as it adds some color to what we talk about today. But in the meantime, one of the points that Dan O'Neill makes is that patients in this country won't gain the benefits of value-based care unless commercial insurers pay for value, for reals. After all, value-based payments are payments that incentivize value-based care. Without value-based payments, how does anyone expect to get value-based care? care. To belabor this point momentarily, a provider is not going to switch up their FFS business model when insurers, especially commercial insurers, pay whatever for whatever with no reward going to providers who spend time and effort to create value and or better outcomes for patients. I'm being super cynical here, I'll grant you. But in this day and age of private equity and record profits by a consolidated healthcare industry, If I'm in charge of a provider organization, just realistically here, Promote John says this really well in episode 352. He's talking about drug development in that episode, but same thing here is true for medical care. If you indiscriminately pay Ferrari prices for Hyundais, you're going to get a Hyundai for the price of a Ferrari. To add insult to injury, and this is just one important reason why providers aren't really willing to invest in lifting outcomes, Any value that they would manage to create is going to be realized by the insurers. It's going to go right back into insurers' pockets. Dr. Steve Schutzer talks about this in his episode about the why and how to create a center of excellence. If as a provider in a pure volume contract, which is FFS, if I work really hard to save downstream costs and complications for patients, some carrier is going to bank the difference. It's go time, all you self-insured employers out there. Pay for high quality. Make the carrot an orange-colored stick, as they say. Patients will benefit, probably doctors and other clinicians too, honestly. Less moral injury and crappy workflows. Today on the podcast, I am talking with Jeb Dunkelberger. Jeb Dunkelberger is the CEO of Sutter Health Aetna, which is a pay vider. 
Payviders, by Jeb's definition, take on full risk. They have a full risk insurance product, meaning they must switch up their business model and how they deliver care so that it works in a total capitation payment situation. We go deep on Payviders the last time Jeb was on the show, which is episode 348. But in this relatively short conversation, I wanted to talk to Jeb about the operational imperatives of moving to value-based care, moving to a care model that is aligned with value-based payments. What needs to switch up in the day-to-day to ensure that patients don't have care gaps that cause expensive trouble downstream or patients at rising risk get taken care of promptly before something avoidable and or acute, i.e. expensive, happens. There are three main things that Jeb talks about. Number one, fixing up the clinical workflow. Number two, having care navigators. And number three, aligning physician comp to organizational goals. Let me dig into each one of them briefly. So fixing up the clinical workflows, there's basically five aspects to that. The first fixing up clinical workflow aspect is to ensure that the right data is in the clinical workflow. Let's talk about this data for just one sec, and we'll find actually one more reason that payers and purchasers need to get, you know, kind of engaged in this making sure members get care thing. Because data, data that payers have that is needed at the point of care, like claims data, please provide it to providers and actually insist that it gets used by clinicians making clinical decisions at the point of care. Second, fixing up the clinical workflow thing is ensuring that there are pick lists of drugs with generic drugs first. Thirdly, make sure it's easy to get to pended orders that close care gaps right within the clinical workflow. Fourth, empowering medical assistants and holding them responsible to create value for members. And then lastly, building referral management into the clinical workflow in pursuit of a non-fragmented patient journey. So that's Thing one, fixing up the clinical workflow. Let's talk about having care navigators, which is the second thing that Jeb mentioned. I just want to remind everyone, this is even more important if the EHR doesn't support referral navigation. Also, Liliana Petrova talks about this extensively, the need for care navigators in episode 357. She's talking about it relative to telehealth, and she makes a really important point. If you want to ensure that the right patients are getting telehealth and also taking advantage of it to streamline their longitudinal care and make it less fragmented, you have to have navigators involved in scheduling. Otherwise, how's a patient supposed to know whether to go in person or telehealth or even that telehealth is available. So that's the second thing. And then lastly, aligning physician comp to organizational goals. We definitely get into this in some detail. We cover these three top line operational must-haves today, and you'll hear about them right from a CEO who is doing them right now. Besides this conversation today, another resource I would highly recommend checking out is a recent article in Nature entitled, link in the show notes, Deploying Digital Health Tools Within Large Complex Health Systems. While this article is about digital health tools, obviously by its title, 80% of the article is pertinent to deploying pretty much anything in a big provider organization, including an upgrade to value-based care delivery. And or probably digital health tools are pretty requisite in any attempt to effectively remodel the clinical workflow in this way in 2022. So there's that too. For additional RHV, Relentless Health Value, episodes on this topic of how to build an operational model that fulfills value-based care objectives, I'd listen to the show with Sean Rhodes on the essentials for clinical integration. That's episode 354. 
Also, the show with Lisa Trumbull, episode 349, on what that integration, clinical integration, looks like from a care perspective. I am also going to refer you to the episode next week, episode 361, with Carly Eckert. So check that out for sure. We talk about care gaps. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Jeb Dunkelberger, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks so much for having me. When a provider organization decides that they're going to take on significant risk, they decide they want to get paid for value at a level where the carrot doubles as a big orange stick. Let's discuss the operational imperatives. What must a provider organization consider operationally so they don't wind up with a big financial problem on their hands? When I look at it, at least from what I've seen to be most successful, it's three things. So one, you got to get into the clinical workflow, right? And you can do certain things so that when your member is coming into that provider organization, there are certain things done within the EHR to make sure that you're taking a very proactive approach to that membership experience and to that clinical intervention. So bringing all the data together and putting it into the EHR, making it actionable for that member I think about using different types of people within the organization. I don't want to call them interceptors, typically care navigators, care managers, folks that are sitting along the proverbial bread you know, crumb path. And they're sitting there saying, oh, here's a patient that had just got a referral for imaging. Let's go and make sure that they go to an outpatient center for imaging. Or here's a patient who just got a referral for a spinal fusion. Let's make sure that they've had the prerequisite PT before they're going in for their spinal fusion. I think you can build that. And then finally, physician comp. I'm probably one of the biggest detestors of fee-for-service, and yet I think fee-for-service is a beautiful machine. You can use those positive or what people call perverse incentives to do the right thing. You can pay people higher RVUs for doing things that are more aligned from a population health perspective, right? We just happen to tie RVUs to things that drive revenue for a hospital in a fee-for-service environment. You can still use an RVU and say, well, now we're going to align this to a population health preventative approach. So I don't want to demonize fee-for-service. I just want to demonize how we've structured it and what we focused it on, which are things that are sometimes avoidable or unnecessary from a patient perspective. All right, so I'm going to tick through the list here and then we can go back and talk about some of these things a little bit more fully. Number one, we've got clinical workflow, doing things proactively within the EHR system, within the clinical workflow. Number two, get care navigators involved. And then number three would be ensuring that we're incentivizing physicians in alignment with value-based objectives. I just want to pause here because I I was just reading something and I definitely want to bring it to light right here. There seems to be a lot of doctors in particular, who somehow think that they are immune to the allure of money, (laughs) that somehow they are not susceptible to like conflicts of interest, for example, that all of that Nobel Prize winning literature about how money will impact human behavior doesn't apply to them for some reason. If you think that, I definitely encourage you to read any book by Dr. Robert Pearl or all of the COI literature that's coming out. And also, here's this quote from a new story about the playbook that the Sacklers used to drive opioid sales. Let me find it. I just saw it here. Here it is. The problem is if any profession believes that they are uncorruptible in the face of money, then they become a very easy mark. A little off topic there, but my point is that, yeah, physician incentives 
matter, at least according to the research. They really matter. But I'd also suggest, you know, that they drive not only what doctors do, but then also how conflicted some clinicians might feel when their incentives drive actions that run counter to their firmly held beliefs and mission, meaning this is also how moral injury happens when you don't pay people in alignment with their values. So maybe that's what value-based care means, in alignment with physician values. So if we're talking about doing things within the clinical workflow, for example, obviously everybody uses an EHR system or the vast majority of people. What exactly are you talking about? So say I'm a patient and I am, let's just say, at risk for diabetes to pick just one expensive condition. Like what happens to me in the clinical workflow? Well, I think when you're looking at the clinical workflow, and I'm talking about like the patient has actually come in. I'm not talking about the pie in the sky. Oh my gosh. Reverta, we've reversed type 2 diabetes, like that stuff is great. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about today, a patient is coming into the practice. What are we doing differently? Changing the drop-down menu for prescriptions to put generics first is one thing. Putting in pended orders that are tying to closing gaps in care is another thing. So you're basically thinking about the medical assistant and saying, you are going to focus and make sure that every single opportunity to create value for the member, you're going to put it right in front of the provider and you're going to have them close the loop while they're in front of the patient. I think that is what I think about when I think about actually making a difference within the clinical workflow. I'm not talking about the population health preventative. And then I'm also thinking about when you see a referral come in and you see that this patient has been referred. One, you know, we talk about network optimization, are we aligning that patient to providers that are really good at dealing with that type of patient demographic? And I will highlight Intermountain and and some work that I did with Susan too back in the day and Dr. Mark Harrison and, and Raj Shrestha when we were looking at how do you align patients and you use patient reported outcomes and measures and begin to look at that referral lane and say, oh, you're a diabetic who also has polychronic issues of X, Y, and Z. You're in this geography and you have a preference for this type of provider, maybe very hands-on or maybe somebody who's hands-off. You start getting into the personal relationship and you begin to tie patients to providers that have a known positive outcome for that type of clinical disposition or personal disposition. We are getting to that point in healthcare. And I think that you can do that through referral management. And if you can't build it into the workflow, God forbid your EHR isn't 100% customizable, that's when you come into kind of tier two, which is those care navigators, care managers, and putting them into the workflow and making sure there's a check down before people go on to the next step. And so let's see both as effective. Yeah. Within the workflow, you had mentioned having, if if there are are care gaps or risk opportunities, let's just say potentially also that those things are surfaced so that when the patient does show up, it will pop up and say, this patient didn't have an eye exam. Patient, you should go get an eye exam. And then the list of places you can go get an eye exam are, you know, the best ones for this particular patient. This might be an overly simplistic example. Or like if the patient doesn't have an endocrinologist, there's, instead of the doctor scratching his head and trying to remember the name of that one person he met in the cafeteria who sounded like, you know, she was doing some interesting things, like it being sort of ad hoc, there's information given right at the point of care for who the doctor should refer to. Yes, absolutely. We're not talking about faxing over a sheet 
with, you know, here's the 20 patients that you're due to see today. Here's the 17 things to do to this patient, 12 things to do that patient. It's built into the actual EHR. They're seeing it when they bring up the screen. It's part of the user experience. It's not on a secondary website. It's not on a piece of paper. It's built into the workflow. And at best, it's workflow neutral, right? So it's not creating more clicks for the individual to go find it as well. So you're kind of like meshing the workflow neutrality with benefits navigation as well, right? You think about quantum or accolade as two really good examples of organizations that say, oh, you know, you need an eye exam or, or maybe you even need glasses. I just got glasses a few weeks ago. I would have loved if my provider told me, did you know that with your coverage, you actually could pay $0 for glasses here or $150 if you go over here? Building that into the clinical workflow is possible. We're doing elements of that today. So again, I think that's a one way to really move the needle. And you can do all these different things because you have claims data. Like in these particular examples for these particular patients, you actually have all of their claims data. And as you just said, all of their benefit information. So you may not necessarily be able to do that for other patients because you just don't simply don't have the data. Yeah, it's the claims data plus the clinical data and actually taking action on it. So you're blending all that together and then you're using your change agent, which is also the provider or the clinical staff to talk with and engage that patient when they are most susceptible and open to change of behavior. You're not calling them three days later or worse yet, three months later when the claim rolls in and go, oh, I saw you went to the ED for something that could have been done with, with a primary care doctor. No, I'd rather get you right when you come in. Again, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. Although the claims data is just delayed, you know, so it doesn't matter if the patient happens to be right in front of you, if the claims data takes three months to surface, uh, assuming that Sutter itself doesn't have an ability to move information faster and create faster claims data than normal, you know, you're still going to have, if the patient just did something yesterday, it still might not show up in a claims data set. 100%. And that's where you have to rely on the clinical side of the house. And that's where having access to the EHR, being able to work directly with the providers, and then even having looks at pre-adjudicated claims. I mean, that's another massive piece of this as well. It's saying, we're not looking to tell you whether or not we're going to accept or deny the claim. We're looking for the clinical action that had taken place. Not to mention the fact that a lot of claims data is sans most of the pertinent clinical data that you'd want anyways, if you're looking to nudge a clinician on a clinical action, right? So having access to the EHR, I think is the second really important piece of this puzzle that kind of nullifies some of what you're discussing now, which is you're still gonna have a claims delay, you're still gonna have an adjudication or reporting delay, no question about that. But how can we get closer to minute zero if we can leverage the EHR data as well? So how much of this, and I say this because the promise of a consolidated health system, for example, was that we'd have all of the data in one house and that would enable many amazing things to happen. We would be able to do medication reconciliation and we would be able to find care gaps and and all kinds of good things that can transpire when you have a consolidated medical record. It turned out that did not happen, that you still had data silos within one organization. So I guess having been around the block a few times, I could definitely see that there would be great promise here of having a consolidated data set. I have in my 
experience. Never seen these data lakes, actually. The reality of them doesn't match their promise. So I definitely can see that there'd be the potential to do all the things that you're talking about, but how much of it is actually happening today? It's a great point. And I think that a large part of our sector has job security just from the fact that they're always promising the next best thing about 10 years out. And then they're going to retire in about nine, right? It's like it never quite gets there. When I look at it, though, first off, there's like three major pieces here that go into actually saying whether or not someone's cracked this nut. One is, have they actually solved the last mile of integration? It's one thing to have data. It's one thing to be able to blend lots of different data sets together and go, oh my gosh, look at what I figured out when I brought social determinants data with claims data and with the clinical data. What a beautiful picture you're able to do. But can you actually then codify the last mile of integration? Can you actually get that to a provider in the nick of time? Can you get that to them before the patient walks in the room and actually nudge and change your behavior? I think it's kind of like number one. And I don't see a lot of that. You know, when people tell me, oh yeah, we do this and then it's on a website or we do this and then we fax a report over. Like, I mean, they're just kind of quick ways where you're just like, you're not passing muster because it's not going to actually be able to operationalize itself and live out, you know, the potential that you're claiming. I think number two is changing the behavior of a provider is an absolute art and science. I mean, I'm, I'm, it is harder than what I think anyone else understands. And, and I'm saying this as somebody who's married to a trauma surgeon, right? Like I know firsthand how difficult it is because every day they have to be the ones to make very big, bold decisions that impact an individual's life. And now magically, because of this data, they're going to change everything they've ever been trained on because the data set says to do something different. It's not how it works. And so I think that, you know, again, when people talk about the data lakes and the the value, they must be able to explain how they actually get that into the provider's hands and enable them to make a change in the decision. And then finally, the part that's probably the hardest is actually changing the behavior of the patient, right? The fact that we still live in a country where six months after a heart attack, less than 50% of people are taking their beta blockers. I mean, we have a long way to go from a societal perspective in terms of getting patients to walk the narrow line that's needed, let alone telling them, I know you grew up going to that cardiologist, but that cardiologist doesn't echo on just about everyone who walks in their front door. I need you to go somewhere else. It's not easy to change an individual's behavior, especially when they don't have the type of information in front of them that can make any sort of action or informed decision. So again, you're getting to a point which is 90%, if not more, of our sector lives and breathes off of the promise of tomorrow and the sad reality of today. But I do think, based upon some of the examples I was giving you earlier, there are ways to make slight iterative adjustments. And that little baby step is at least better than standing still. But again, you're right, we have to do more. And I could see that that last mile could be particularly difficult. You know, you had mentioned that you had a performance network. If you look at me using the lingo, that was 12,000 strong that included not only Sutter, but also, for example, Stanford. I mean, it could be one thing to tinker around with your own EHR system, but the more additional provider organizations that get in that mix would make it more difficult to obviously standardize across the board and to get them to prioritize what probably, I mean, it sounds like a huge tech IT project. So you you definitely have to have certain standing within the organization for them to take the resources necessary in order to do that programming as well. And then, of course, they don't necessarily have the same upside as the owners of the JV insurance 
plan, the NUCO, as they say. No, yeah, no, you're completely correct. And I think the one thing I would say, if I was a betting person, I would say that one of the things that I've seen work very well is the provider-led care management. You know, you kind of look at the different things that a traditional health insurance company does. You think about disease management, case management, utilization management. When that's delegated to a provider organization and they are instructed and enabled to do it amongst their own peers, I actually have seen a massive, I mean, a material double-digit difference in terms of utilization trends when it is a medical director from a large carrier calling versus a peer of yours that's within your organization and has the same email address as you do. Honestly, so as you kind of go through this, maybe pay, pay vital organizations are not the panacea for what our country is dealing with, but maybe it's a stepping stone in terms of where the market and where the country needs to go if we're going to actually rectify this sector in our lifetime. So you had mentioned peer reviews and, and having the same email address. One of the other things that I heard, I actually heard this complaint about on Twitter just recently, where doctors who were bemoaning the prior auth process and they were like, you'd think since we're owned by the same entity, administratively things would be easier, but they're not. <laughs> You know, and obviously some of this crazy administrative stuff, people trying to get a prior auth for gabapentin or something, it's like a $2 generic, is just like burnout personified, right? Like just it's all those little administrative tasks, someone just trying to take care of their patient, buffeted at all sides by, dare I say, stupid stuff like that. If you're a payvider, does that enable, if you're forward thinking, some of these burnout inducing administrative tasks to be minimized? I think that's a great point that you bring up around these administrative tasks where providers were kind of arguing that theoretically it should be easier given that their own parent organization or provider organization is the one administering the insurance side of the house. What I would say is that theoretically, they are correct. But the hard part about this is, at least in my mind, I always believe that if a provider organization is willing to take on more financial risk, then they should also be afforded the opportunity to take on more of the administrative risk as well. So if you don't want to have prior authorizations and you want to have a quote unquote gold card, that absolutely makes theoretical sense. I think the reality, though, is that typically... The prior authorizations, especially on commercial lives, are oftentimes tied back to the third-party administrators of the self-funded groups or even the fully insured side. There's, there's SLAs and guarantees that are made with those employers that there are certain things that are going to be prior off. And that even plays a role then into what that self-insured employer has from a reinsurance perspective, right? So when you think about their stop loss insurance, there's other sorts of prerequisites that all tie back to what the physician believes is driving their burnout. So that administrative headache, unfortunately, doesn't just end with the insurer. I think the insurer is oftentimes the scapegoat, but there's a number of players behind that that represent the interest in decision to have a prior authorization. Now, I will skip the fact that there are a number of payers who can't even administer a gold card-like process because it's extremely difficult for them. This ties back to the same reason why 
You look at bundled payments, for instance, and you think about a prospective bundle, right? Paid at the beginning, and then you zero out all the claims thereafter for a defined episode of care versus a retrospective bundle where you pay at the end and you kind of true up. What I would say is the prospective bundle requires a payer to be able to zero out claims. And that too can be administratively difficult where their claim system can't actually do that. And some of the largest payers in this country actually have that issue. And so oftentimes people say, well, theoretically, this is how it should work. And I say, theoretically, you are correct. Operationally, it is much more difficult than that. And sometimes contractually, it's not even allowed. Jeb Dunkelberger, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.